1: Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Isabel Kaplan. Isabel Kaplan is the author of the national best-selling novel NSFW which was a finalist for the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize and an Amazon Best Book of 2022. She is also the author of the viral Guardian essay My Boyfriend, a Writer Broke Up With Me Because I'm a Writer and the national best-selling young adult novel Hancock Park. She studied English at Harvard, holds an MFA in Creative Writing from NYU, and was born and raised in Los Angeles. Welcome, Isabel. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you. I um, loved your book. I tore through it. I know everybody says that about this book that they just kind of like (laughs) ate it right up. (laughs) How could you I'd love to hear that. (laughs) It's so fun to read even as it's so enraging. So I can't wait to talk to you about all of it.
0: Looking forward.
1: Before we do that, would you read a little bit to us?
0: I would be glad to. Um, So I'm going to read from the start of chapter four. Awesome. David can't come with a condom on, and the pill makes me bloated and irritable. So I've decided to get an IUD. Enough of my friends have raved about theirs. No cramps, no periods. It lasts five years and so on. I'm sold. I make an appointment for early on a Friday morning in December. The nurse assures me I should be fine to go into work afterward. I tell my mother about it over the phone the night before on my way home from work. Why would you do such a thing? She says. You'd think I'd announced an intended nipple piercing. I wouldn't get one if I were you, she says. This is not the reaction I was expecting. Why not? They're supposed to be great. They're dangerous. I had a friend in law school who got one, and it perforated her uterus and destroyed her fertility. The technology is better, I say. They're safe. I don't know about that. I do, though. I've done the research. I have friends who have them. Did Dr. Kim say this was a good idea? He couldn't have recommended it. My mother and I shared gynecologist. Dr. Kim both delivered me and gave me my first pap smear. It's a lot. Too much, perhaps. Dr. Kim says it's safe. Are you sure that's what he said? If I were you, I'd look into all the risks. Yes, I'm sure. And I literally just said that's what I've done. Don't jump on me. Why are you yelling at me? I'm trying to be helpful. I wouldn't want you to lose your fertility. I'm only thinking about what's best for you. I haven't seen you all week. and Now you call and tell me you're too busy for me this weekend and might be destroying your body and I worry. Is that so terrible? To love you? To care about your future? To want you to know the joy of having children? The greatest joy of my life? I end the call with a flurry of frustrated apologies. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please don't cry. Don't cry. There's nothing to cry about. There's everything to cry about. Back at my apartment, I shove a hexagonal white pill as far up my vagina as it will go. The following morning, I take 800 milligrams of ibuprofen and drive my dilated cervix to the doctor's office, which is located between Balenciaga and Cartier on Rodeo Drive. As I slide my feet into the stirrups and edge my ass down to the end of the exam table, Dr. Kim asks after my mother. I inquire about Dr. Kim's daughter, who is a year ahead of me in school. All very normal small talk, except for the fact that my legs are spread, vagina splayed, and Dr. Kim is on his way in with a speculum. I try to focus on the watercolor painting on the wall across from me. A landscape, mountains, smeared trees. It hurts. A piercing cramp, then another. Feels like what it is, I guess. Something being shoved into my uterus. All done, Dr. Kim says. The strings will soften over time. Success, I text David. I buy stick on heating pads in the pharmacy around the corner, as the nurse recommends. But the pad is too big for my stupid low-cut underwear, so I have to paste it half on my panties, half on the inside of my jeans. As I get into the car, I contemplate calling in sick, going home, curling into a ball. Then I check my email and see a note from Alan. Gregory's assistant is out sick today. Can you cover? This is what I've been waiting for, the chance to interact with Gregory, to demonstrate my competence. Alan says Gregory thinks his current assistant is flaky and disorganized. My task, I understand, is to present myself as the opposite, and that starts with showing up. I take a little more ibuprofen and half a clonopin for good measure, just to take the edge off. By the time I get to the office, I'm feeling a little spacey, but that could be any number of things. Nerves, ibuprofen on an empty stomach, clonopin, whatever. Gregory's office is along the senior executive corridor, which connects the front and back bullpens. These offices have the best views, looking out over New York Street. The assistant desks line the interior hallway, divided into pairs. Gregory's office is at one end, and his assistant's desk is a disaster zone. I never registered this before, not fully. To get between the front and back bullpen, I usually take the back hallway, which is lined by filing cabinets, less formidable than a row of stressed senior assistants. The desk is piled with papers, stacks upon stacks, the surface barely visible. A quick inventory reveals dozens of DVDs and paper sleeves, three mostly empty plastic water bottles, a bottle of Lysol spray, unopened mail, and several legal pads filled only with geometric doodles. Two sticky notes hang off the bottom of the computer monitor. One reads, expense report. The other, therapy. I see no computer login information. No desk Bible. Every assistant I've covered for so far has left one some more comprehensive than others. They are a guide to your job and your boss. Some have multiple authors, compiled over several assistant generations. Passwords, preferences, things to avoid. Half of the notes in Alan's desk Bible are incomprehensible, but the other half are useful. It's nearly 10, Gregory will be here any minute. The red voicemail light on the top of the phone is illuminated. I press the power button on the computer monitor, which brings me to the login screen. My stomach contracts, pain radiating from my uterus. I sit down in the desk chair, press a hand against my lower belly, and glance around the desk again. It has to be here. It's probably right in front of me. I take a breath. I turn to my left, to the desk belonging to Julian. We still haven't really interacted, but he occasionally acknowledges me with an upward nod hello, which is what he offers now. He's wearing his headset. I'm not sure if he's currently listening in on a call, or that's just his default. I gesture at the desk, the computer monitor, and the phone, channeling my confusion into my facial expression as clearly as I can. He gives me something between a smirk and a smile and turns back to his dual monitor setup. And now here comes Gregory, leather messenger bag over his shoulder, coffee cup in hand. I've heard he's difficult, high maintenance, a bad manager. But the late 30s guy who greets me this morning and thanks me for jumping in is nothing but polite. As he opens the door to his office, he makes a joke about his assistant's mess, says he hopes I can find what I need, but to let him know if I have any issues. I'm sure I'll be fine, I say weakly. Any voicemail, he asks. Oh yes, just a sec, I say. Passwords. Where could she keep the passwords? I rifle more desperately through the piles of papers around the keyboard. Wedged between scripts, I find a single sheet, important info, bolded at the top. Brief flash of relief, smothered when I discover it's only a list of Gregory's food and drink preferences. Water. Fiji. Room temperature. Lunch. When he says just a salad, he means a Lascala roast chicken chopped with no cheese, extra garbanzos, add pepperoncinis. No passwords. I'm out of ideas. I look over to Julian. Hey, Julian, I say. He appears not to hear me. You can just tell me who left word. No need to worry about the phone sheet. Gregory calls out from his office. Okay. I call back, then to Julian. Quick question. I make a concerted effort to dial up the volume of my voice. Sorry to interrupt, but do you know where she keeps the login info? Oh, sure. You should have just asked, he says, plucking a sheet from the front folder of a standing file on his desk and holding it out to me. I grab for it, equal parts grateful and incredulous. No time to dwell on the question of how long he would have waited, watching me flail. I scramble to log into the computer while checking voicemails a misguided attempt at multitasking that results in mistyped passwords and numbers. Press four to repeat the message. Four, four, four again. Yo, it's Andrew. Give me a shout. Some guy says as if he's the only Andrew around.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so glad you read uh, uh, what you read because I wanted to ask you um, about you you did such a great job writing the mother daughter relationship because it's hard to convey i feel like the um <laughs> like the ways that mothers can uh, get under your skin but also make you feel you know like you still really need them like you need their love and their support and and the the smart things they have to say but they drive you nuts And I think to an outsider to see that kind of relationship, especially in that, you know, scene, which is, you know, not the only scene like that in the book, you know, it just sounds like she's got a difficult mother, which she does. Um, And, you know, that's it. End of story. Um, But it's, you do such a good job of showing the complexity in that kind of relationship. And I just wanted to know how you did that.
0: Thank you. I mean, I'm so glad to hear that came through. That was really important to me because I think it's really easy to flatten that type of dynamic. And to also say, you know, something is either healthy or unhealthy, you know, toxic or supportive. And Mm -hmm. the truth is with a lot of relationships in life and a lot of the most intimate ones, and especially ones with family, which, you know, have layers of layers of complexity. It's the answer is often, you know, both and it's Mm -hmm. yes. And Mm -hmm. it's not one or the other. If any relationship were entirely good or entirely bad, it would also be easier to say, you know, I'm cutting this out of my life. It's not useful. Right. And I really wanted to examine the dynamics of codependency and how complicated they are because both the, the mother and daughter in this book, it, it it is heavily codependent and there is a lot of pain and a lot of sadness and hurt and suffering. And then there's also a lot of, you know, profound love and support and mm-hmm. it's all really messy. And a lot of that messiness. Happens, I think, for people who are in relationships like this, in a sort of a void where you feel like no one else knows about the complexity and no one else could possibly understand the nuances. And therefore, you can't explain them to anyone because they won't seem relatable. It'll seem strange and specific and it won't make sense. And you won't be able to explain it without demonizing someone and glorifying the other when in truth, it's a really complicated push pull. And I think fiction lends itself really well to explorations of relationships like that because it's all about the murky spaces and in mm-hmm. everything i write i'm i'm really interested in you know the gray space where you can't tell if something is good or bad or healthy or not you know helpful or hurtful and that's what i wanted to explore through, through the whole book from you know the mother daughter relationship to the work life relationship to all of it and so mm-hmm. i it was a for me i thought of it a lot as a gradual accumulation that you need to sort of be Deeply intimately inside this character's experience and see the way that experiences accumulate because if it were if it were just telling just explaining you know here I am and using therapeutic language to say this is what this kind of relationship is, and here let me tell you how it's pathologized and what it stems from, that doesn't resonate with people it's it's the accumulation of tiny moments that are you know specific to this character in this situation, but um, I hoped and I've you know found over the past year as people have been reading it that, you know, it resonates with people who've been in all sorts of different kinds of complicated, overly intimate, codependent relationships, because it's the it's the power dynamics at play. It's not the specificities of what happens.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, there's there's all these reasons that, um, you know, the character feels gratitude toward her mother um, And so, you you know, like, it's just such a human thing to think to yourself, like, well, you know, these wonderful things. And so I can't think, because there are wonderful things, I have to feel guilt for thinking these terrible things or feeling exactly put off by this person who's given me so much, but also takes so much. Uh, That really just, um, you know, that seemed so true to me as I was reading. I'm glad. And I loved how, when David would try to point out like, Hey, that's, that's actually not great. <laughs> <laughs> your, your mom shouldn't be acting like that. And how immediately the character is like, excuse me, don't talk about my mom. Yeah, it's like,
0: You don't know her. You don't know what, what it's like. And no, there's this you know, immense defensiveness that if someone else should point out what's wrong, it's like, no, you don't understand. You don't have the right to say that
1: and it's true they don't understand they don't understand because it's it's like you're exactly like you're saying it's a million different little moments and really big things and really small things that all led up to this
0: yeah i think the tragedy is that of course you want nothing more than for someone else to understand right you know the whole desire and especially when you're in a relationship that's difficult in that way it relies on your feeling of isolation it requires you to feel like no one else in the entire world understands you like this one person so the tragedy is that yeah anytime David tries to understand or tries to empathize or tries to have insight she pushes that away and also thinks you know you can't possibly know because I haven't told you all the bad things and the answer is that's true Mm -hmm. he can't know but he won't know unless you share
1: Mm -hmm. yeah she's absolutely repulsed by him
0: (laughs) oh yeah no it's just you know disgusting to her
1: yeah yeah I thought that was just so real I I you know that that was brilliant and funny and sad to me oh I'm glad and i love that you brought up how you know i think the tendency in a lot of fiction is to sort of and in, and in a lot of storytelling in general and there's nothing wrong with this because lots of people love to read things like this there's there's the narrative arc right and so like if that if you were writing something traditionally um you know following that arc then i think her feelings would have the, the ending for us the relationship with her mother for us as the readers would have been you know, I'm, I'm not going to be scared of spoiling anything. Cause your book's been out for a yeah. year. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Would be that moment in the car where her mother's like, yeah. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I know that I hurt you. And, um, you know, you said like she, the character and anyone wants to hear like, yes, this is wrong. You're right. This, this is wrong. But what, but maybe what anyone wants to hear it from is from the person who did, who perpetu- who perpetrated the the wrong. Right. And, and yeah. so it's like, if this was a traditional, narrative arc that would sort of be like oh okay they've reached this yeah you know catharsis almost and a little bit of understanding and you know it's still going to be difficult but at least there's that but then the book ends with this other very complicated wrong um you know with her seeing her mother you know entertaining Robert Baum in her home and um And, you know, and, and the character immediately feels icky about that. And so it's, it kind of twists it again. And I I absolutely loved that you, that you did that.
0: I'm so glad. Yeah. I wanted that final twist
1: of the knife to be there because
0: yes, it would be much more satisfying for you to have that moment of catharsis at the end where you feel like the mother and daughter see each other, understand each other. And then there's also that, that flicker of hope that from here on out, everything's going to be different. And you know, narratively that's satisfying, but, but life is often much more cyclical than three act structure. Mm -hmm. And there's a feeling of, you know, one step forward, two steps back, or then you feel like bewildered because you've had this grand realization and moment of intimacy. And suddenly how could this other thing happen? It's that feeling of the rug being pulled beneath you. Mm -hmm. And so I was well aware when I wrote, you know, what came next, that there was this moment of false calm and a false sense of you know mutual understanding and they both are going to be on the same page going forward because they're on the same page here and mm-hmm. then that flips completely and the book ends in a moment where the narrator is fundamentally on her own forced to make a difficult decision and i it was really important to me that i build it in a way that the reader could see that she might go either way that she might do either thing and that neither is going to be great. they like, that there is no good move here. There's, this is not a game of chess where there's one move that's going to lead to something good. It's she's choosing between two painful situations and, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, I think, especially with narratives like this that we see in the media, the, the way the newspapers portrayed the me too stories and the uh, stories about women who came forward and women who told their story. It's there's this, real tendency to want to turn it into a black and white narrative and Mm -hmm. to exalt the women who talk and to say, you know, look at them speaking truth to power. And that is objectively the right thing to do. And they are refusing to be silenced any longer. And anyone who stayed silent was an enabler and was complicit. And what those stories never talk about is what happens to those women after Mm -hmm. and the lives that they have to lead. And the fact that, you know, not everyone wants to become a poster child for sexual harassment. Not everyone wants that to be the main thing that pops up when you search about them. And the idea that saying that this thing happened to you against your will, that you did not want to have, have any part of that. Simply speaking about that makes that your main issue. It makes that the platform you're standing on is is unfair and it is awful and it does stick with you. And I, you know, it's been interesting talking about the book because I also find that like, you know, that happens when I talk about it, that a book that features sexual harassment and assault ends up, you know, the conversations do end up being more about that. And there's a lot in the book about being a young woman that doesn't involve being assaulted, but, Mm -hmm. but because I'm up for talking about it, and I absolutely am, it becomes, you know, very much a main focus. And yeah.
1: And I mean, that just seems like, how can it not? Right. Like, right. Of
0: course, because that's the way it happens in life. You know, you, you are in a situation where you don't want something to be a big deal. And you tell yourself, like, if I refuse to make it a big deal, if I refuse to center it, then it won't be centered in my life. And the problem is that's not how it works. You don't get to choose that. It's a fundamental lack of agency.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's reminding me of a conversation she has with her mother where she's asking her mother you know how could her mother advises you know quote advises this victim of sexual assault yeah basically tells her like you should absolutely do this but here's what's going to happen if you come forward the network's going to you know throw everything they have at you you're going to have to tell your story again and again and again you're going to be ruined here no one's going to work with you and you know the character the narrator is absolutely appalled but also understands that this is true like this is true what her mother's saying Yeah, there's just so many, so many moments like that where it's like this is the time where you know, someone should stand up, but then you think about it for more than thirty seconds, and you think, you know, this is actually not gonna not gonna really create enough change to be worth what it does to that person's life or to the narrator's life.
0: Yeah, and I think the tragedy also is is that few people are in situations that are as black and white, and easy. easy, I mean, as easy to talk about as they are brutal to experience as we run into with situations like Harvey Weinstein, whereas the majority of women I know who have, you know, been in a workplace have experienced situations, which are like, where they felt sort of uncomfortable, but in a way they couldn't quite put their finger on. And so they're not sure if it's actually that bad and they're waiting for something that is, you know, really capital letters bad to happen because that'll be the thing that's worth complaining about because all of these teeny tiny things aren't worth the fuss and, the problem is, is that over time, those teeny tiny things accumulate and under- ultimately you end up feeling terrible about yourself, but you also blame yourself for it because you think, you know, nothing that bad has happened to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that is an extra difficult layer of complexity that gets added on to women and to you know, the idea of like, what is worth ruining your career for? Like mm-hmm. w- how bad does the thing have to be, to be worth, ruining your career. And the problem is is that obviously it shouldn't ruin your career. It shouldn't lead to that. None of those things should be the case. But what the mother is saying is that, you know, practically speaking, this is what's going to happen and it shouldn't happen. And there's nothing that she feels she can do about that. And I think to be in your early 20s and to hear someone who's been at it for decades say that that's where things still are is really both frustrating and difficult to grasp for the narrator.
1: Yep, absolutely. And I think that's another reason why, you know, the character of Veronica, who I imagine is someone who decided I'm just going to play ball, you know, like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to laugh along with the guys, you know, you hear her on that phone call, you know, belittling someone, you know, an actress's weight and appearance. And because obviously it's helped her, right? Like it's helped her to sort of let that stuff run off her back. Um, Maybe I'm assuming things about, about her. Um, but no, I think that's exactly right.
0: Like she played ball and here yeah. she is. It
1: worked. Yeah, it worked. She got, she got to the top and then at a certain point it stopped working, you know, like they, they threw yeah. her over the bus, but you can see that always it always happens. It brittles someone, right? Like it turns yeah. you into the thing that you thought you were too smart for. You thought you were, you know, playing along, but then you realize like, Oh, I'm, I'm a part of this now.
0: Exactly. And I, <laughs> I wanted the, the narrator's path to sort of reflect the beginning of that step. So, you know, we see in Veronica what happens once you're at the top, but I wanted to also show how that happens, like how you can think that knowledge will protect you, but knowledge doesn't protect you at all. And play, you can only play a part for so long until you become it, you know, until saying, well, inside, I feel this, well, in, you know, okay, so. Mm-hmm. You know, that's great that you feel that way inside. No one knows that. And that doesn't matter anymore.
1: Right, exactly. And you (laughs) just get tired and you, you you know, I think a a perceptive person or maybe just even like a borderline person thinks that people can pick up on, oh, oh, I've stiffened here or I've, I'm clearly uncomfortable or, or even cares. Right. And, and you slowly realize that that's not true. And no, you know, like you can just see it's, it's exactly like you're saying this character just sort of gets. (laughs) beaten into exhaustion by all these things that she kind of has to she has to keep track of so many things she has to try to advocate for herself and move up in the business and she also has to decide like when to and she tries her best she tries her best to, to speak up and um you know and and say when you know hey you know the American public might like an actress who looks like a real person or you know like she tries but but it's just it's it's a wall of this stuff that you're trying yeah to and also
0: through. who is she who you know, who cares what she thinks? Right. That's the problem is that in order to have comments like that have any weight, you have to have already amassed power. And in order to amass the power, you have to behave in ways that people you really fundamentally dislike, um, approve of. Yep. And, and I think when you say it like that, it seems obviously like a trap, but when you're living it in just a day-to-day fashion, because you have to survive and come up with ways to make your life survivable. That's not how you think. You you can't think that way because if you think that way then you know what are you doing with your life?
1: Mhm. I want to talk about your use of conversation and dialogue. Yeah. Um because there are so many meaty conversations happening. We got to hear um a little bit of that in your reading. Um I think that's actually really hard to write an interesting back and forth that lasts longer than like four lines you know (laughs) I think that's really hard and and you had these people you know really sort of dissecting and you know the the narrator and her mother you know like the narrator with with a lot of different characters um and I want to know like what how you constructed those conversations
0: I it's interesting because I think a lot of those and a lot of those big conversations came really naturally and immediately and like whole another a piece and the thing that I'd have to remember to do was to say like okay well where are they in the room and what's happening and you know place this somewhere like it can't just be back and forth for 10 pages and and as I was revising and as I was getting notes from my editor like that was more the thing that I needed to remember to do was to zoom out of this conversation mm. but I I was really interested because a lot of those conversations are like complicated and they sort of like get tangled and circular and I I wanted to show the way that you also get, like you can articulate your thoughts clearly sometimes, but you also easily get confused and misled and misdirected. And you can end up saying things in a conversation that are completely different than the things that you thought or that you thought you thought before you said it. And the way that you know you can travel down that road and end up somewhere you, you didn't think you'd be. And also the disjunction between what characters are thinking and then what they feel either allowed to articulate or capable of articulating. And like, I really wanted to press up against, against that line, because especially in conversations between the narrator and her mother, the narrator is hyper aware of how her words could be misconstrued or could be misconceived. And so she often ends up controlling her language and what she says only to then have it, you know, spew out in ways she didn't plan and didn't Um, anticipate because that's what happens when things bubble up. And I wanted to sort of to show that emotional build and to show the ways that conversations can ricochet. And I think part of that, you know, some of that probably was that, you know, I did work in television. So I do have um, a background that, you know, is heavily dialogue based. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I've always loved about fiction, the thing that television can't do is interiority. It, you know, it can't tell you what someone's internal monologue is. Like, in my, you know, my ideal form is one that does have that, the speed and, you know, voice of all that dialogue, but also shows you the interior state of characters. And so I think bringing those two together happens sort of naturally.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love how you can see how um, the, the narrator has had these same conversations with her mother so many times that she, yeah. she, she can jump ahead in her, in her mind and see this is where this is going. And I'm yep. just going to say something to stop it before it actually gets started. And yeah. it never works, you know, like, nope, it, 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 <laughs> no, it never works. It, it, um, you know, it, uh, it, it causes more anguish in her mother and her mother. And, but it's so relatable. I mean, this is not the same thing, but I do the same thing with my five-year-old, right? Like I, yeah. Like, oh God, she's spinning up about this. Let me just like distraction, you know? And it doesn't work. And it's like, Oh, I have to deal with the actual thing. Um, yeah. And and I think a, a lot of their conversations happen like that, where it's well trod ground and it's the narrator really trying like not to upset her mother too much, but also really trying to protect herself. Yeah. And extricate herself before she's dragged down. Um, yeah. Because this person, her mother's a very depressed person and, and dealing with a lot of, you know, mental health issues, it seems. And you know, the narrator has her own issues and and there's just not going to be a lot of light in this conversation. There's not going to be a lot (laughs) of growing, it seems. And they both know it, especially the narrator knows it. But there are two instances that I can think of where there is a change. And one of them, we already talked about it's in the car, but the other one is when her mother asks her to look at herself in the mirror and she doesn't want to. And she knows when she looks at herself, she knows what she's going to see. But she does it anyway. And then what she sees is actually what her mother has been saying. And that blew my mind because that is mother-daughter right there. Yeah. I, I, can you talk a little bit about that scene and what it was like writing that? And because and, that was just such a beautiful moment where she's seeing and she's believing she sees the truth in what her mother has been saying.
0: Yeah, um, that scene was a really fun one to write. And I wrote it. Um... It's one of those scenes that I was like in the first draft, I wrote it sort of as it ended up in the final draft, which is, you know, when you go through enough revision, you realize that that's not often how it happens, but that one. Right. And that's how, you know, made it's in, it was good. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> it did it in there pretty full cloth. And I, um, and it's, that's probably one of the longer dialogue based scenes in the book. Like it's really pretty long and it happens. I think it's about maybe two thirds of the way through when um, the narrator sort of, hits a wall where she has, she thought she had an aha moment. She thought she was seeking out empowerment. She did all these things and suddenly realizes like, you know, I'm still being objectified. This is like, I'm still being treated this way at work. I, you know, am being treated as smart for a woman. Like, how did this happen? How am I trapped? I hate this. And I'm participating in in it. And I am part of the problem. And she, starts spinning out and spinning out, you know, at first in platitudes of like, you know, I am a part of the problem. I'm complicit, all of this. And her mom tries really hard to sit her down and say, you know, like, you're doing, you're doing well. you're doing the thing. Like, you, you know, you feel distressed, but like, actually this is working. It's working. Look at you. And I, um, and there's fury, I think coming from the narrator at this point, because she feels like she's been sold a faulty bill of goods. You know, this myth of female empowerment, this myth of female empowerment that has, put her in like wildly uncomfortable clothes where she spends all her time thinking about how she looks and how she acts and has had this hope that someday when she does enough of that, then she'd finally reach this, you know, mythical point of empowerment and then be free to think about important intellectual concerns and is hitting this aha moment of, you know, that's a lie. And her mother, meanwhile, is sitting there, you know, looking down the barrel of her 60th birthday and in, in the city of Los Angeles where it's you know not easy to age and feeling <laughs> feeling looking at her daughter like you know look at you you're 23 you have got it like you've got it all like you know enjoy what you have now you you can bitch about it later but right now you you know work with what you've got and look how good things are and she looks in the mirror and she I think it's I wanted to read as a complicated moment because she can both see what her mother is saying, but also she wonders like, well, why doesn't it feel better? Mm -hmm. You know, why is like this it? So yes, this is that, this is what success looks like. So why does it feel like this? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I wanted to end that chapter on a note where, you know, she doesn't have an answer to that. Like, you know, does it not feel better because it's a, her problem or because it's a, the world problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there is often, it's hard when you want someone to empathize with you, but you can also see what they're seeing. Like, that's the hardest place to be in. And it's uh, because it's much easier to feel righteous anger and to feel like, well, if only they could see through my eyes, but she can see through her mother's eyes. And that also leads to the, you know, the guilt of like, well, why don't I enjoy this more? Why am I not better about it? Why does it still feel bad? And I, I wanted to show how all of those feelings can exist together and then they sort of just get um, stuck fermenting. You know, when you don't know where to put them or what to do with them, you just have to carry on, which is how we live most of our lives. We don't usually have uncomfortable feelings and then epiphanies and then figure out where to put those uncomfortable feelings in which drawers and get to carry on. It's more that, you know, they just accumulate. And this is one of those situations where it feels really meaningful and like a catharsis, except she doesn't know what that catharsis is not so she just it's just still gonna be percolating
1: mm-hmm. right like not all of us can go live in a yurt you know like- right
0: exactly like that you know that's not the option she doesn't have the like flee at all and you know or maybe she could but she she can't think that way like that for her is unfathomable
1: mm-hmm.
0: I that's say true. as I live in you know a yurt temporarily basically, are you in a yurt fled. right now no I'm not I am in oh. a wooden cabin so it is not a jerk
1: similar similar i'll give it to you. <laughs>
0: yes but as a temporary escape yes
1: <laughs> um i love that scene so much because of everything you just said but i i it gives her mother this moment of um like seeing you know like really yeah. like value you know and um we need that um it it really like there is love there and there is care um, and that's that, you Absolutely. know, that's what makes the scene even more complicated because her mother is difficult. Her mother is very difficult um, and their relationship is hard, but I just, I love, yeah. I love that.
0: And it also gives her the feeling like the confidence that she can keep going. Like she sees right. her mother's faith that she can do this thing that her mother d- didn't do that she right. tried really hard to that she made strides and that she's now offering a hand to her daughter to say, continue this, you know, you can continue this thing that I was fighting for and feeling her mother's confidence in her and her ability to do that is incredibly important to her. That's what she's been working for. And so it's, you know, it's what gives her the energy and the commitment to keep going, to, you know, give it another shot, stay in there.
1: Yep. Has your mom read this book?
0: uh she's been to all of my la events she's been wonderful yeah every single la event that i've had she has been there she's
1: Um, so proud it's
0: wonderful yeah i mean you know from when i was growing up she always told me when i was in a situation that was difficult or painful or where i felt that i didn't have any agency um the you know the refrain was think of it as material
1: oh my gosh
0: I mean, that was, you know, and this may not be exactly the material she had in mind, but, you know, it was always a think of it as material, the like, you can write your way through. And so I, in fact, learned how to do a lot of that from her. You know, she she writes nonfiction, but uh, she'd been writing um, for, you know, since well before I was born. And so I, you know, I learned some of that, the like, the speak truth to power, The if you're in a situation that feels complicated, or if you have something that feels really painful and difficult to say, that's usually the most important thing to say.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. What was that like growing up with uh, a mother who was writing? Did you get to see her? Like, did you, you know, pass by her office and watch her writing or, you know, like, was it part of your life at home?
0: Oh yeah. All the time. Um, books were, you know, constantly part of my life. And I think I was very fortunate in that, um, when I said, you know, at a really young age, I want to be a writer. I want to write books. There was never this, you know, Oh, that's a pipe dream, or Oh, wait, when you, until you grow up, it was more just like, okay, go do it. You know, you think you can do it, go do it. And, um, and that led me to be sort of an unhinged kind of 12 year old who, you know, mm-hmm. went to the Barnes and Noble and bought the, you know, guide to literary agents and started <laughs> querying agents in the seventh grade with, <laughs> With my first book pitch. And my mom was you know, she was very helpful in saying, you know, she pointed out, she's like, listen, your age is a hook, use it. Make sure to tell all these agents that you're 12. And <laughs> which I did. And, you know, it Amazing. turns out a surprising number wrote back because they weren't receiving, I can now understand, you know, query letters that I'd studied the form. I knew the form. I like knew what I was doing that are, you know, that begin with, I'm in the seventh grade. And um, and so there was never a sense that, like, it was like, okay, you think you can do this, go do it. And you know, on the one hand that puts like expectations high, but it also made me feel like, okay, I can do that. Right. You know, I don't have to wait till I'm grown up to do that. And um, you know, I can start now. Uh, it meant that, you know, I didn't do like a lot of like fun hanging out things as a child. <laughs> I was, you know, much more interested in inviting people over for playdates where I'd be like, okay, today's activities, we're writing a story. <laughs> that's what we're doing for fun.
1: Oh, that's incredible.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, that was very much like what it was like. And there was, you know, I, I sold a book when I was 16. And at the time I remember thinking like, man, I've been at this for years. And like, <sighs> yeah, I had, but I was 16. Like, yeah, I'd been trying to sell a book for four years. And for me, it felt like a full-time preoccupation. But, you know, I had no sense of perspective, which is like, yeah, you're a 16 year old and exceptionally fortunate. And, but that's the, like, I think, you but know, you
1: did the work, you know, the work.
0: And I still, to this day, think that to be a writer, to write books requires like equal amounts of like commitment and delusion. Like each time you've got to to be deluded. And I feel that way now, like each time, every time I start a new project, I think, oh, this is going to be like a a tight little compact, you know, project I'm going to go straight through. It's going to be, I'm going to see the end from the beginning. It's going to be quick. It's going to be fast. And it's like, no, it's not. You're in for years of agony. (laughs) And and you don't even know if anyone's going to want it at the end and you have to be deluded enough to think that, you know, your deepest, murkiest thoughts and feelings are going to be something that someone wants because otherwise, why would you spend years on it? And so I think that in a way, starting young helped me because I had all the like, you know, grandiosity and delusion of like, of course, my words are going to be read, you know, (laughs) and zero understanding of the publishing
1: process. And I think that's good. I I actually think that's good because I feel like it's crippling if you do understand it when you're starting out. (laughs)
0: You know? Oh, it's horrible. I mean, I, since then I, you know, I've now worked sort of in the intersection of publishing and entertainment and it's horrible. Like I, I know way too much. It's not good. It's mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, if I knew all this, I, like, it's really hard to just sit down and write a book knowing all this. And it's, how could I write a book without a murder in it now? Like, you know, all these things, <laughs> like, you know, I know what this picture is going to look like. Am I really not going to add a dead person? Like I'm really, it's just about people and how they feel like that's, you know, if
1: people there's not like religion, a stylized drawing of a woman in oversized sunglasses on your cover of your book then forget it
0: forget <laughs> it like what, you know what are you doing and if there isn't some you know where is my central twist my central twist is people do complicated things to, to each other and you know everyone's complicated um i think you know and if if i knew anything about like book sales beforehand oh god that like you know all of those things are just horrible like i I started working at a literary agency before this book came out and, you know, having access to all those numbers and like BookScan is a terrible place to spend time. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Every time my and, agent talks to me about my numbers, I'm like, why are you wasting your time talking to me? <laughs> well, my agent
0: tries not to like, she will do everything to get me to not know my numbers. That's good. Because yeah, this, this um, book
1: did good, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, yes. Compared to like it, no, I feel very lucky. Um, it was a national bestseller yeah. and was shortlisted for the center for fiction prize. Um, but it turns out novels still don't sell copies was the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the dark takeaway was that, you know, it's all relative. Um, and I think I also learned pretty quickly, that like, it's amazing how fast the bar moves and how hard it is to reach readers and how, you know, like, nobody seems to know what to do. Mm -hmm. And that part is hard. And I'm someone who like, give me an assignment and I will do it. Give me a really hard assignment with like a difficult deadline, even better. Like I want nothing more than to be given a task. And it's hard to be in a situation where, you know, I did the task, the task was write the book. And for this next part, you know, I have no idea how to get people to read it. You know,
1: it's really hard. And like you, it seemed for a while that you just had to be like good at Twitter, right? Like you had to be good at social media. And then we all realized like, oh, that actually doesn't help at all. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know what helps. You know, I wasn't good at Twitter, but then I went viral on Twitter and did that lead to book sales? I have no idea.
1: Your, your essay, your guardian essay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I like suddenly had, you know, I was there, I was involved on Twitter, but you know, does that sell books? I have no idea. I bet it did. Some, hopefully.
1: Cause I remember when I read that essay, which I loved and I, I everyone should go seek it out if, if you can. Um, I'm sure everyone listening has read it, but, um, <laughs> I was like, Oh, Isabel Kaplan. Yeah. Cause I already, we were talking about you coming on the the show. Yeah. Um, which it's just been pushed for, for whatever reason, but, um, yeah. So it drove me right back to like, let me make sure I have that copy of that book. You know, like, I feel like, I feel like it had to, it had to, <laughs>
0: I I mean, I think some, but not nearly as many as you'd think.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, And certainly some, um, but it's, you know, it's strange because I had no idea that essay was going to hit the way it did. Um, I put a lot into it, but I put a lot into the book also. And so I guess I, you know, my hope was that it would reach, I probably expected it would reach the same, some similar number of people as the book did. And then the answer was, you know, no, it reached way more and way more people know about my personal life. Now, then, know about my question.
1: <laughs> is that so strange? Like, do people like talk? Like, just bring it up with you. It's. I mean, it's.
0: It is really surreal, and I um will say it makes dating strange.
1: Mm. Okay, oh, like, they Google you. Yeah. Ugh.
0: Um, and that comes up. Mm-hmm. So it's been. It's you know. It's an. In, I've had to learn how to have interesting date conversations about it. Um. I mean, what's interesting is that like I a lot of people comment on how raw and vulnerable I was in that essay. And the answer is, you know, yes and no, It it is very honest and very intimate, but it's also an essay that I revised, you know, 10 times. Mm-hmm. And by the time you publish something like that, it's not like a Twitter rant. It's not where you're just like going off the cuff. Like this was something I had the chance to work on and polish and chisel. And it becomes in the end, like a, you know, it is deeply intimate, but it's also something that I, turned into like a craft and so that does create a sort of a buffer where it's you know this is a thing that happened to me it's not the sum total of my life and its experiences but it is certainly very strange and it's strange there's like this weird recursive loop where like at least in the uk you know in the amazon page there they have book titles and then colon and then something about the author and so for the brits at least it says you know not safe for work from the author of the viral essay, my boyfriend, a writer, broke up with me because I'm a writer. And I'm like, this is like such a circular loop. Like, my book came out, and so I was dumped. And then I wrote a book or an essay about being dumped because of the book. And now the book is being pushed as being written by the person who wrote that essay. I was like, this is oh. full circle. Oh, no. Now I just need to write an essay about what happened after I published the essay. And That's, then we'll have,
1: that, which, that you know, break is, the cycle. <laughs>
0: Um, no, in order to just start a new cycle, you know, that's like, that. like, then the circle gets bigger. Then you get to see like what the fallout of the essay was on my life, which was, oh, you know, God. plenty.
1: Oh, well, maybe if you, um, like murder someone, then that will supersede.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the answer. And then, you know, then the sales will skyrocket if yeah. I just murder someone. That's, that's the right. solution.
1: That's right. Do you think there's any hope for Hollywood? Oh god. I mean, well, this is a really interesting
0: time to be talking about it because, mm-hmm. you know, the writers have been on strike for it's like 2 months now. Mm-hmm. And waiting to see what the actors do. And I think I think a lot of people it's interesting, you know, I'm very far from Los Angeles and Hollywood right now as we talk, and a lot of people that I run into haven't realized that there's a strike yet, but they will soon when there's no more new television. Mm-hmm. You know, that will hit mass awareness soon. And I think I I want there to be hope. I, you know, I've reached, I reached years ago a pretty powerful state of, you know, burn it all down, burn it all down. It all needs to be burnt down. And um, and then I learned over the course of promoting this book where I was saying left and right, people would ask me and I'd say, burn it all down. No, it's all fucked, burn it down. And it turns out that there's no amount of times that you can say that that anyone will say anything other than like, oh, sweet, how cute. Like, <laughs> you know, like I can say burn it all down in the Hollywood reporter. And no one's like, oh, she really wants to burn it all down. And then you run into the like, and the truth is, like, here I am, still within the system. Like, how could I possibly believe that? I'm still standing inside the burning building. And and that's true. You know, here I am saying, like, I don't think there's any such thing as like an ethical institution. And yet I still want to survive in society because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I haven't found a different one yet. Um, So I don't know. I really hope that these strikes can be a reckoning, at least for creatives. Um, I, you know, I, as far as like these, the bigger institutional problems, I think we haven't gotten anywhere. Just, you know, a handful of bad men have been fired and people like to feel good about that. And everyone else who was always in the system, who was always part of the problem is still part of the problem. But, but for the first time, I think, you know, that maybe there's this rumbling will lead to something, maybe realizing that, you know, that all of these unionized groups do have the power to strike in a way that would, would affect the entire industry. Maybe there's something, I don't know. I am scared to be hopeful, but you know,
1: I mean, what alternative is there putting out a book like this, you know, which is is from a person who lived inside this world so we can trust it right like we can trust its point of view and and a book like this that is literally just laying it out there you know in a a fictional way but also you know in a realistic way it feels like it feels like a like a step right it feels like it, it 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 had a fair amount of readers and yeah you know reactions and we just need that to keep happening,
0: I hope so. And my hope was also to just reach the like. The hardest thing about being at the bottom rung of a ladder like that is feeling like no one hears you or cares what you have to say or has experienced this or it matters to. You. And, and that was you know a large part of what I wanted to write for was people who have lived in that experience. And those are some of the I, I love hearing from readers who you know are assistants in you know not just Hollywood companies but all sorts of companies who feel like they see themselves here. You know, I don't want anyone to see themselves, but I think that there is sort of a universal experience to being a corporate underling. And part of that relies on your feeling of isolation. And, you know, the isolation forces you to put up with it. If you felt like there was any option, you'd do something about it. It's only when you feel like there's no other option. And I think and I hope that, you know, younger generations, now like I I'm a you know a full decade away from the narrator of this book now. And I think talking to some younger people, there is like hope that they are talking to each other more and building alliances. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the only thing that I that I know that works is to find allies, to, you know, make real friendships and partnerships with your peers because those are the people who are going to help you.
1: I love that. The final thing I want to ask you is if you can recommend just three things that you're into right now
0: three things that I'm into right now. Um, right now I am into escaping America at the moment I have (laughs) fled. Um, I, (laughs) um, so I've been traveling, which, you know, a dose of perspective is always helpful when possible. Um, I am newly really into, um, diving. Like I've been doing a lot of scuba diving and free diving and being underwater and that, to me, like is terrifying in a different way and an exciting way, as opposed to being inside my brain. Um, I spend a lot of time inside my mind and it is not always a comfortable place to be. Mm-hmm. And I've been searching out over the past year. So like place things I can do that get me outside of my brain. And so I turned to running for that and it has to be running outside because if I am inside on a treadmill, that is still way too much time for me to look at numbers. And then it becomes about, you know, my body and, you know, whether I'm doing it for losing weight And versus running outside. I find, you know, turns out everyone knew this, but me being outside feels really good. Like, you know, being in the open air feels really good. It's good for you. And, you know, you're forced to encounter the real world. And as a former indoor kid, I am learning a lot about, you know wow, nature, it's great. Like vitamin D, (laughs) excellent. Um, Like being on a bicycle outside instead of a dark spin studio. Great. Feels good. Like emotionally, not just physically. So I've been doing um, and enjoying a lot of that. I am reading two books right now that um, are coming up, coming out soon in the next year that aren't out yet that I'm really enjoying um, debuts. Part of what's been great about having this book come out is that I get contacted by author's who, um, and many of them who are like female debut novelists writing sharp, funny, incisive books. And it's, you know, that's great. That is a category of book I love to read and I'm excited to support. Uh, So I'm reading right now, Rabbit Hole by Kate Brody, which is about a woman who falls into a Reddit conspiracy theory Mm. hole trying to solve her um, sister's disappearance. And she just goes wild on Reddit threads and, and just becomes progressively unhinged. And um, I'm also reading a book called uh, The Book of Iron* by, um, by Lexi Freeman, which is about, it's a satire about a writer who gets canceled by the New York Times and develops an obsession uh, with Ayn Rand. And just, you know, it's just a biting satire about living in, with creative ambitions in the late capitalist hellscape. So both of those have been really fun to dig into.
1: That's amazing. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Um, I think uh, the first two are great for <laughs> any writers who are listening to hear. <laughs> Escape America or get perspective
0: and go, go outside. outside, like, go outside, just outside. That's it's what I've fun. learned. Like, every time I am not feeling good, it's like, oh, have you been inside all day? Um, and the answer is yes, probably.
1: <laughs> and it's so, um, I don't know, maybe because I'm a mom, but it's so poignant to think about you as a 12 year old and like deciding this is my life. This is my creative pursuit. And I will be inside doing it forever. And then, you know, like coming to this other part of your life where, you know, I can still do this and I can, I can go out and be in the world. I just think that's, I think it's,
0: it's not even that I can't, it's that I have to, because what I've realized is that, um, you know, the thing I've always known, I love to do, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always written, But I'm also someone who fundamentally doesn't do well when I'm alone, not with other people in a room all day by myself. Like Mm -hmm. that's not my best self. Um, I work well with other people and I like working with other people. I like supporting other projects. I like being involved in things bigger than what's going on inside my head. And so it's been sort of a lifelong so far battle to try and find that balance of, you know, how do I protect my writing time, but also be with people in the world, you know, work have a community, build and create that community. And I think that's so hard. And I still don't have, you know, an answer to that. And I've tried different, different approaches, but I think, you know, to write well, I also need to be living in an engaged way. You know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's a time and a place for like, oh, I desperately need a month to hole up and finish this and just do this. But for the sustained work, like the stuff of life, you know, that is the, Yeah, it's hard to have a family. It's hard to have a job. It's hard to do all these things. It's also crucial to have at least some of it Mm -hmm. because otherwise you don't have a balanced view of anything. Otherwise, you know, you're just living a life of words and that's not, that's not relatable to most Mm -hmm. people. That's, you know, that's not an experience of life.
1: Yeah. I always think of that as like curdling, right? Like you start to curdle.
0: Yeah. That's a very good word for it. You do. And you don't realize you're curdled until you're already curdled. And then it's that panic moment of, you know, Oh God, I need out. And I think I, you know, that's the moment where you need the jolt from reality, because it's also way too easy to, you know, end up obsessing over things that don't matter. And to feel like when you're in a tiny insular world, especially if you're in the middle of like I talk a lot to people who have just published books or involved in all that, that like, it's really, really easy to get sucked in online and check all sorts of things that aren't helpful for you to be checking. And instead of, you know, continuing to live in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think we, um, writers especially, are <clears throat> used to being hyper vigilant, and we can't turn that off sometimes, but it's necessary. Yeah, and
0: and I still have not, figured out how to turn that off completely. I mean, as I just explained, I need to be like physically exhausted in order to not be thinking is what I've learned, um, which is mm-hmm. why, you know, all the running and all the swimming and stuff. But but if you don't turn off sometimes, you know, you break.
1: Yep. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on and giving us all this wonderful advice and talking to me about this great book. I had so much fun reading it. It's NSFW by Isabel Kaplan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I wanted to promote a couple books that I was sent that I just think are so awesome. Um, the first is called Ebb E B B by Grant Meyerhofer or Meyerhofer. I'm sorry if I butchered that. It's on Kernpunkt Press. And it's, it's a book written entirely without the letter A. Um, so Kernpunct Press is a small press out of New York, uh, Hamilton, New York. And this book is called Ebb. And I just wanted to read the first page um, so that you can get a taste of it. And then you can go to Kernpunkt and order yourself a copy. Ben ebbed. Where he went, who he met, he ebbed or flowed. The person sort of being like the river sort of. Sure, why not? The ebb then Ben, little shit, little ebb. He lived in Illinois. He studied in Illinois. He went to school in Illinois. He supported his schools in terms of their sports. He liked to sit there enjoying sports. Something in it brought him joy, this sense of community or this sense of joining up. So Ben ebbed with women. He ebbed, never flowed. He found endless opportunities to ebb, even when witnessing the sports. He took women to the events. He tried to commune with them on why he loved the sports. It never went very simply. He often felt depressed. Little Ben ebbed since he lived young, since he lived in his childhood home. He found endless possibilities to ebb. How did he ebb? It's like the word itself, how we use it, ebb or flow, flow, or ebb the flow being the mellow time, the nice time, the ebb being the rougher time, the even violent time. Here, Ben existed most consistently. Ben worked in the shop which rented films to the people. They turned it into this co-op wherein the people spent the set fee month to month, then with this, they could rent X number of the films if they wound up desiring more. If possibly they desired some TV series, then they'd go into their purses to spend just one bit more to support the co-op in its entirety. That's the first page of Ebb by Grant Meyerhofer on Kern Punk'd Press. It is quite awesome. Go get a copy. The next one I want to talk about, uh, some of you may remember that Shannon McLeod was one of our guests early on. She's got a new book out called Nature Trail Stories. It's on 30 West, Um, so go to 30 West and order yourself a copy of Nature Trail Stories. And I thought I would just read the first page of the first story. It's called Waiting. I pull in beside the picnic shelter of the nearby nature center. There's a bench in front of the cage where the northern saw-wet owl lives. It's usually where I sit after work when I'm feeling despondent. Today, it's lower 60s, warm for March, but there's wind and cloud cover so it might as well be 50. I wrap my scarf around my neck a second time and approach the cage. My eyes revisit the story of the bird found along the highway, awake in the daytime with a broken wing. They do not name their birds. The signs say names anthropomorphize the animals, which is supposedly a bad thing. I find yellow eyes within his enclosure. He waddles from his bed of hay towards the perch. He is a small breed and appears infant-like despite being a full-grown adult. I think how if this were a story, the owl would begin to talk. He would give me some vague task, a challenge. He might say the name of a location over and over again. Maybe he'd hoot, Louvre, Louvre, Louvre. Then I'd go home, pack my bags, and when my husband came upstairs to question the luggage, I'd throw him some trite phrase only Nick Cage would utter. I'd follow a series of clues. At every crossroads, an owl would appear, flying in the direction I was to follow. That's Nature Trail Stories by Shannon McLeod on 30 West. Go get a coffee. (sighs) Thanks for listening.